Hey guys, as you can tell, this is not Roots Chris. We're having to make some changes because of the whole coronavirus situation that's going on. If you're listening to this podcast in the future, uh, you may remember the great corona self-quarantine of 2020. Anyway, uh, Roots Chris as a restaurant, along with most of the other restaurants in Charlotte, is closed for a few weeks while we try to flatten the curve on this virus that's going around the country. So this uh, this week we're gonna do it from here in my home office. Um, we're gonna pick right up where we left off. So if you haven't listened to the podcast in a while, be sure to go subscribe and check out the first few sessions of this study because we ended at the beginning of chapter four of the book of Ruth last time. So that's where we're picking up right now. We ended with Boaz after Ruth had basically laid down the gauntlet uh, in a very friendly and we find out to Boaz a very flattering way. Ruth had said, you know, um, hey, you prayed that the God of Israel would, uh, that I found refuge under his wing. Well, you take me under your wing as refuge. You be the answer to the prayer that you prayed that God would provide for me. And so uh, check out the last session if you want to hear more about that. But Boaz, rather than being appalled at this foreign Moabite woman who dares to ask him to marry her, he's flattered. He can't believe it. And that's one of the endearing qualities of Boaz in this book is he never, you get the sense that he never realizes how high of his station he is in life. You know, he eats with his workers. He, he's among the normal people. He's a generous landowner during this time of, of economic hardship. He, he gives freely to those in need, even when they're foreign, even when they're Moabite, even when they're Moabite women, which as we've seen throughout this study is like, doesn't have a good reputation. Remember the Moabite women were who led Israel astray back during the time of Balaam. And so all throughout, it's like Naomi, I mean, Ruth has, has been exactly what Naomi needed in her time. She's clung to Naomi and, and put her lot in with Naomi's and said, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Where you die, I will die. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. So Naomi uh, has experienced from Ruth this chesed, this, this unmerited devotion with no promise of benefit for Ruth whatsoever. Ruth stepped into the unknown like Abraham and was willing to risk her life. Then she was willing to risk her safety and her dignity by scavenging in the fields, by literally picking up the remains after harvesters had gone through uh, for the wheat or the barley and the wheat harvest. So she was willing to do whatever she could to provide for Naomi, who she who, who had lost everything. Remember, this is the book of Ruth, but it's really the story of Naomi. Naomi had lost everything. And so Ruth comes to her. And Naomi is, is moved by this, as are all of the people of Bethlehem. We found out last chapter, everyone realizes the character of this Moabite foreign Gentile woman. That she is an Ishachayel, uh, a woman of character, a woman of strength. The counterpart to Boaz being a man of great standing, an Ishgeborchayel. So she's his perfect counterpart. Ruth embodies what Proverbs 31 ends by saying, a woman of character, who can find? An Isha Chayel, who can find her? And it's almost as if in the Hebrew Bible, the next book, the book of Ruth, opens and says, well, here, here she is. Here's an example. And guess what? She's not even an Israelite. She's a Moabite who's come to faith in the God of Israel and who's pledged herself to the people of God. So much so that her name is forever remembered. This Moabite woman's name is forever remembered in the annals of Israel's history. Along with Boaz, 
Now it's Boaz's time to shine because he realizes the strength of this woman. And, and the book of Ruth never says anything about her beauty. It's, it's, you know, this is usually cast as Ruth as a love story and Boaz is the romantic lead and Ruth is the romantic lead. And it's, it's kind of this, we, you know, you get taught that Boaz was just enamored by Ruth and her beauty. She may have been beautiful. Maybe. I mean, who knows? The text never says, though. She's never praised for her beauty. She's praised for her devotion and for her steadfast commitment to Naomi. And Boaz is moved by this. And all of the people of Bethlehem are moved by the faith and the devotion that this foreigner is showing one of their own daughters, Naomi. So Boaz, uh, as we saw in the last chapter we ended, where he calls a town meeting. He goes right to the gate the next day after Ruth um, suggestively asks for him to marry her. We just don't remember we talked about it's just on the border of being illicit, but not quite. And uh, so Boaz got the message. He took the hint and he goes and he asks, or he calls a town meeting. He goes to the gate of the city. And we, we talked about the gate is where business took place. Official town business took place at the city gate. And that's where the elders would sit and they would conduct a business. So it was like town hall. It was where the records were kept. It was, you know, blotting out somebody's name from the city gate means wiping them out from the records of the town. Having proclaiming the goodness of someone at the city gate means making a public show or a public proclamation of their character and how good they are. All these expressions you hear throughout the Bible, uh, possessing the gates of your enemies, as God promises to Israel, that means, uh, that means completely conquering and subjugating one's enemies. If you possess their gates, that means you own their city. It's like taking over the capital or taking over City Hall, or Congress, or whatever uh, modern equivalent you want to put. So Boaz goes to the city gate, he calls the elders, and remember the situation. Boaz wants to be the kinsman redeemer. He wants to be the one to, to rescue the family of Elimelech and Naomi from their names forever passing out of Israel's history. Once Naomi and Ruth die, they're done. He wants to rescue their family name in Israel. And in the process, by acting as a kinsman or redeemer, but there's one who's closer in line in terms of the concept of kinsman or redeemer. There's one who's closer, who has, um, we would say, who has first buyer rights or first redeemer rights to the situation, meaning uh, the, the estate of Elimelech, including Naomi. So Boaz, uh, because of his own honesty, he can't, uh, he, he said he, he, his own integrity doesn't allow him to accept Ruth's offer on the spot and say, yes, I'll marry you. Yes, I'll take you under my wing. Uh, instead, he says, no, there's somebody else who actually has uh, better or, or closer rights. So I need to go make sure that um, I do the right thing. And so we as readers and the story, this is part of the, the dramatic arc. We're like, no, Boaz, what are you thinking? You're, you want Ruth to be your wife. Ruth wants you to be her husband. Naomi wants you to be her redeemer. Everything's great. And now you're going to ruin it by having this other chump that we don't even know about come in possibly and take everything over. And so that's the tension that the narrator leaves us. And so Boaz, he goes to the city gate, and it just so happens, again in Ruth, nothing's, uh, nothing happens by chance, even though the narrator says it just so happens or it just chanced upon. Uh, it just so happens that this kinsman redeemer, this closer relative to Naomi, comes by. And so Boaz sees him, and Boaz calls him over. And we saw last uh, lesson how he refers to him as not by name, but says, hey, hey, so-and-so, come here. And that the, this character, this kinsman redeemer's name is forever uh, unknown in the history of Israel. 
And there's a reason for that. We're going to see that his name is, is forever uh, remains a mystery while Boaz's and Ruth's are praised throughout all time. But Boaz, he took the elders of the town. He said, sit here. This is verse 2. Uh, and they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, he says, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. Now, some translations say is selling. Some translations say has sold. Uh, the, the text could read either way. So if it's is, Naomi is selling, that means that she's come back and now uh, the land that has laid unused because of the famine that belonged to her husband, is, is she wants to get rid of it. Uh, and now that the famine's over, maybe somebody can get some use from it. You know, she's too old to do the farming and, and cultivating of the land. So she's got this land and she's going to sell it. The other view is that uh, she has sold the land, meaning during a time of famine, Elimelech and Naomi sold the land when they went to Moab. And if that's the case, then the land is sold and it's the right or the, or the excuse me, the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer to redeem land that had been sold. That was their duty, that was their job from Leviticus 25, if you remember that session in the study. The kinsman redeemer, whenever somebody was in dire straits and they had to sell their land, the, the land was to remain within the clan, within the tribe. So someone from that clan or tribe would need to redeem and buy back that land from whoever it was sold to. So if that's the case, then Naomi has sold the land and Boaz is telling this kinsman redeemer, hey, somebody needs to buy this land back into the family. Uh, so either way, you could interpreters are, uh, go either way on that one. It doesn't make a huge difference other than reconstructing the nuances of the story. But, uh, you know, pay your money, take your pick. Either of those translations is fine. So verse 4, he says, I thought I should, and the NIV says, bring the matter to your attention. Uh, but what Boaz literally says in Hebrew, it's a cool idiom. He says, I thought I should open your ear. In other words, I thought I should tell you, let me, let me whisper a secret into your ear. Hey, you need to know this. Uh, you know, you, you wouldn't know this unless I came and told you this. So he's, he's really showing kindness and he's showing like, or he's telling the guy, hey, I'm doing you a solid by letting you know about this deal. There's this great deal that you should know about. And it's going to seem like a great deal at first. He says, uh, I thought I should open your ear and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here, in other words, officially, legally, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and then I'm next in line. So Mr. So-and-so says, I will redeem it. This is a great deal for him. He gets a piece of land that he can now use and cultivate and, and pass on to his offspring. Mr. So-and-so has his own estate, his own family. And so this land he's going to get it should pass on to the offspring of Elimelech, but Elimelech's dead. Naomi's a widow, so he's getting a widow's land, which means when she dies, the land's completely his, with no strings attached. So this is like a bargain basement deal, and it's a good way for him to increase his estate. So he says, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz says, ha, ah, here's the catch. There's always a catch. Verse 5, then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi... Uh, Ruth the Moabitess you acquire, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. And now he introduces the second part of this kinsman redeemer concept, which is you don't just have to be a redeemer. Uh, in this situation, the dead man 
had a, a son and a daughter-in-law. And the son died and the daughter-in-law is left. So this daughter-in-law, Ruth, a Moabite woman, you know, like, ugh, a Moabite, uh, she comes as part of the deal. And so you have to become a leveret marriage husband to her. Uh, leveret marriage mentioned Deuteronomy 25. It was a practice in Israel where if uh, two brothers were living in a house and one dies before having kids, then the brother was supposed to take the widow as his wife and raise up children to produce children. But those children wouldn't be the living man's. They would be considered the dead man's children. So the estate would continue to pass through the line of the, the deceased and the widow. It was a way of the widow and her offspring being provided for and the name of a clan not being wiped out through premature death. But it cost to do that because the levier, the one who married, and I think that's Latin for brother-in-law, which is where the term comes from, the, the levier had, who took the wife was basically raising up offspring that would not count as his own. That means that when it was time to inherit, uh, pass the inheritance on to his children, it, it wouldn't pass to his own children entirely. He would have to divvy it up. And this other person who uh, he married, who he took on, it was like he was raising up, but everything that that person got would go to the name of the deceased rather than the name of the one who married. So it was a very costly gesture. Um, taking on the concept of leveret marriage. It's weird for us. It, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's like basically polygamy uh, modified, and it's not something that you see carried over into the New Testament. It's, it's part of the Torah law that was not uh, continued in the New Covenant. So there's some layer, the layers of interpretation that we have to work through. But in essence, it was the system in ancient Israel, not just Israel, but everywhere in the ancient world. It wasn't unique to Israel. It was a system whereby widows and orphans were cared for by those who were still alive, and it cost the person who did it. It was a costly act. It wasn't like a, a get-rich-quick scheme or, oh, I get another wife and, and more kids and, and increase my estate. No, no, the estate you were raising up through Leveret marriage would continue to be the estate of the dead brother. Uh, so without getting too far in the weeds, just know that taking somebody on as a Leveret marriage uh, was, was a costly act. And, and throughout Torah, God has these ways of providing, just like the law of gleaning, allowing somebody to come behind and glean in your fields. That was a costly act. You know, every morsel of wheat, every grain, a stalk of grain that you don't pick up is money out of your pocket. It's, it's food out of your family's mouth. And yet God had instilled in his economy a sense that I'm providing for you so that you will be the means by which other people who don't have as much as you are provided for. And that pushes against some people's politics or economic outlook, but Scripture, again, challenges right and left-wing thinking when it comes to ethics of the kingdom of God because God does hold to the concept of, yes, the one who doesn't work shall not eat. Uh, you know, somebody who shouldn't be idle. Uh, you have to go the law of gleaning. You have to actually get out there and pick the stuff up yourself. It's not just the workers pick it all up and then give you some of it. No, you got to work for it. But that's balanced by the generosity required to make the situation possible by the, by the landowners telling his workers, leave some back. Don't make the highest profit margin possible at the expense of everything else. Build in a system of looking out for one another into the economy. Or, or God saying, I have built in a system uh, like that for the economy. So uh, here again, Ruth is in tune with the rest of Scripture 
in providing this balance of personal responsibility and social provision that we as believers today somehow need to recapture. And it takes critical thinking. It takes imaginative outside the box thinking. It takes not being um, just doggedly wedded to one particular political ideology, but being able to say what in this situation best manifests the desire and the kingdom of God. And then finding ways to implement that. And that's a challenge. And Christians will disagree on it and, uh, and have different views about how we should do certain things and taking care of the least of these in society. Fine. Yes, that's true. Uh, but at the end of the day, our concern should still be how do we take care of the least of these in society? Uh, and, and let that be our starting point because it's God's starting point for sure. So Boaz tells Mr. So-and-so, hey, part of this deal, this land you're going to get, here's the catch you don't get to keep it. You're, you're holding it basically for Elimelech, for the line that has deceased, for, for Naomi's dead husband and his dead son, who is now represented only by Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, this Moabite woman. So you got to take her on, raise up this property, and then when it's time for somebody to inherit, it's going to go to the potential offspring of Ruth and it will be reckoned as Elimelech's family's property, not your family property, Mr. So-and-so. So that's the catch that Boaz introduces, just as it looks like things are falling apart. And Mr. So-and-so, at this, he says, verse 6, at this, the kinsman redeemer said, then I can't redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I can't do it. So here, Mr. So-and-so makes his decision, and it's, it's, it's like Orpah earlier in Ruth. It's a prudent decision. He's not condemned for it. He has his own family and his own estate, and he's right to think about their needs. Um, but at the same time, we, through the benefit of hindsight, realize that from this decision, from him putting the needs of his estate first before the care for this widow and, and the estate of his dead relative, by putting his family's needs first, he is forever forgotten in terms of his name. In other words, his family lineage just passes out. We, we never know who Mr. So-and-so is. We never know what family this kinsman redeemer represents. We don't know anything about him after he makes this decision. Had he said yes, and had he taken Ruth as his um, wife, then his name would be the one that was remembered for all time. But it's not. He makes his decision. It's a wise decision in the eyes of the world. But we, through the eyes of, through the bigger picture, see he gave up a chance to be great in the history of, of everything because of his concerns for the present. And so that's something to think about. It's an interesting, um, it's an interesting side thought, at least to me, in the book of Ruth. But let's wrap it up. So, Verse 7, now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. This is a practice where if you wanted to make a deal, you know, like sometimes we, in older times, we would make a deal with somebody, you spit on your hand and shake on it. So in ancient times in Israel, uh, possibly, probably it comes from the concept that your land was seen as everywhere you have the right to walk. Wherever you have the right to walk freely, that's your land. And so when you were transferring land, um, you may uh, basically walk with someone the boundaries of the land and, and that transfers ownership. Now they have the right to walk this land 
Um, eventually, that became symbolized the walking of the land. Of course, when you do that, you're doing that wearing sandals. So the sandal became the symbol of the land, like the deed to the land. So rather than walking it out, you know, you just would exchange a sandal or hand a sandal. And this was basically saying everywhere that this sandal has walked or has the right to walk, now you have that right. And so this, that's why the sandal, and it was a practice that by the time of Ruth had even gone out of um, practice. And so the narrator gives this little parenthetical note to tell us, uh, to tell his audience at the time of this earlier practice. So that's what's going on with the sandal. Uh, verse 8, Boaz uh, so the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he took off his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Chilion, and Machlon. I also have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Machlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town gate. NIV says town records, but literally in Hebrew it says, so his name won't disappear from the town gate. Today you are witnesses. So the sandal's been transferred. The, the deed has been signed basically in the presence of witnesses at the city gate in Bethlehem. It's a done deal. Now everybody knows that Boaz has taken and redeemed the property and the family name of Elimelech. The thing that was wiped out at the beginning of Ruth has now been restored and redeemed through the action of Boaz at the urging of Ruth at the instigation of Naomi. So it's such a cool image. This whole book is, is not, sometimes it's told as the man, Boaz coming to rescue. He's the white knight. He saves the day. But it's really not. Ruth is one of these cool books in the Bible where we see men and women equally working together in order to accomplish God's purpose for the least of these. And in doing so, both become stronger. Both become better when they're working together rather than working against one another. Competition between the sexes, enmity between the sexes, that was a result of the fall, never God's original intention. God's intention was male and female bearing his image. And so Ruth is kind of a cool little glimpse of male and female in a patriarchal culture where women have the short end of the stick working together and everyone is raised up as a result. So I really love the teamwork and, and, and the, the, the group effort involved in all of this and what's going on to save this family, to save this family line of Elimelech that disaster had threatened to wipe out at the beginning of the story. So then all the elders, verse 11, all the elders, all those at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you uh, have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring or the seed the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. That last line is interesting. So first of all, this is, this is a, a mind-blowing paragraph. The elders of Bethlehem, the Israelites, cheer for this union of their standing, big-time uh, chief citizen, Boaz, Mr. Boaz, who, who, who runs the show in so many ways. They're cheering at him marrying this Moabite widow, this nobody 
from an enemy territory or what used to be enemy territory from a people who had once led Israel astray. Now they're cheering. Why? Because they too have seen the character of this Moabite widow as she has become an Israelite in good standing, first through her faith and her devotion to Naomi, now legally through her marriage to Boaz. And so they cheer for her and they name her right up there with the names of Israel's matriarchs, you know, Rachel and Leah. Those were Jacob, Israel's wives. And so they're, they're, they're saying, speaking a blessing, may you be as blessed as our ancestor mothers. That's, that's unheard of for a Gentile woman to be spoken of that way by upstanding Israelites, but they do. And then they mention their local matriarch. You know, may your family be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. Perez was the one from whom these families all uh, originated. It goes back to Genesis. You can read the, the story of Perez and Tamar and Judah, Genesis 38. But, but uh, without getting into the weeds of it, it's fascinating because Tamar had to trick Judah, the ancestor of all of these people, into marrying her into, because her first husbands had died. So she had to basically trick Judah into becoming a leveret or a levier. And then uh, fathering, when he fathered two children from her, Perez and Zerah, Perez went on to become the head of the families who these Bethlehemites are descended from. So even in, in this own, in, like you get a sense that in Bethlehem, they understand as much as anybody, if not more, what can come about through dire circumstances of a Gentile woman, which Tamar was, uh, and leveret marriage. So it's kind of a cool nod. Go back and read the story of Tamar and Judah and, 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 and Ruth and think about those connections. And by the way, um, Tamar and Ruth, both later in Matthew's Gospel, two of the four women that appear in Jesus' genealogy are Tamar and Ruth. So even Jesus, even the Messiah's genealogy acknowledges that, that God accomplishes His purpose through all kinds of means. Um, but anyway, let's wrap it up because we're running out of time. We do want to keep this normal length. So, verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive. Remember, she was barren for ten years in Moab. Now she can conceive. She gave birth to a son. And the women said to Naomi, Praise be the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Why are they saying that to Naomi? Ruth's the one that had the baby. Ruth's the one that did the work, right? Remember, this is the story of Naomi. The book of the Ruth, the book of Ruth is the story of Naomi. And Naomi was the one who had lost her sons. Naomi was the one who had lost her hope. And because of Ruth coming alongside her, and then Boaz coming alongside Ruth, and the two of them together, coming together and giving birth to a son, now the family line of Elimelech continues. Naomi's family is not wiped out, ultimately. She is redeemed. Boaz is Ruth's redeemer, but the son born to them is spoken of as Naomi's redeemer. What she lost, she has gained back. She had lost the ability of, a son, of having a son and her family name being carried on, her husband's name uh, remaining in Bethlehem records. Now she receives it back. And the people know this. And so this is, this is a celebration for Naomi. And then they cap it off by saying, For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. So not only is Ruth elevated to the status of the matriarchs, 
in Israel's history. But now she's even said to be better for Naomi than seven sons. That's incredible high praise in a patriarchal culture. So again, Ruth is turning all kinds of, of gender, gender concepts or, or patriarchy concepts on their head. And, and this, that's one of the things that's so fascinating about this book. Then, verse 16, Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her bosom, and cared for him. In other words, she became his nanny. She took him on her lap, took him to her breast. Uh, uh, you know, she might have been too old to physically nurse him, but the image, at least, symbolism of her, she has a baby boy again. After having two die in Moab, she has hope once more that her name will carry on, her family's name will carry on. And verse 17, the women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. Obed just means servant. Uh, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And so the line of Elimelech continued because of the generous act of, of Boaz in redeeming it. But what about Boaz? What, what about him? You know, how, what, he, he kept Elimelech's name going and he kept Machlan's name going, Ruth's uh, first husband. And so it's kind of like, okay, well, it's a happy ending for everybody except Boaz, right? Because you know, he's going to raise this kid that's going to legally not be his kid, but it's going to belong to the deceased husband, Machlan. And, um, and, and the inheritance and the property rights are going to pass on. So it's like Boaz just kind of, you know, what does he get in the end? Well, Boaz doesn't become Mr. So-and-so. We know Boaz's name because of this. And the book of Ruth ends with what to us seems weird, a genealogy. But to the ancient readers, perfectly fitting because it's a 10-generation genealogy. And as we saw in our study of Genesis, a 10-generation genealogy, the first person is important, the last person is the culmination, and the seventh person is a status of honor, like Enoch was in, in the Genesis genealogy. And so we end with this 10-generation genealogy. It says, this then is the family line or the family records, the Toledoth. This then is the genealogy of Perez. This is from the tribe of Judah. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Amminadab. Amminadab the father of Nashon. Nashon's an important dude. This is Aaron's brother-in-law, one of the main leaders of the tribe of Judah during the Exodus. You can read about him in Exodus and Numbers. Uh, Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon the father of Boaz. Boaz the father of Obed. That seventh point in the genealogy, Boaz. And Boaz was the father of Obed. In other words, he gets his name recognized as the, the actual father in this situation, as the father of Obed, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. And we don't need to tell you who David is, the narrator is almost saying. Um, so what we're seeing, the book of Ruth, ends. Boaz's name is forever remembered, unlike Mr. So-and-so. Boaz took a risk financially, and to his reputation, perhaps, by marrying this Moabite widow. But in the end, Boaz's name is forever preserved in the history of Israel, in the genealogy, even to the line of the Messiah, Jesus. Not to mention David, Israel's greatest king. And so his name is remembered. And Boaz and Ruth both are, are talked about as man and woman of valor, of strength. Ishkabur Chayel, Ishef Chayel, woman of strength, man of strength, mighty. Um, and the cool thing about this is, in the book of Ruth, their strength was manifest through their need, or through their looking out for the most needy among them. 
It wasn't done because of their, um, their prowess in battle or their physical strength or their economic ability or their social standing. What guaranteed their status as being a man and a woman of strength in the eyes of God and in the pages of history is the simple act of scavenging for a mother-in-law and showing generosity to a foreigner widow, an immigrant. That's what's the catalyst for all this. So I love the book of Ruth because it's tucked in between Judges, darkest days in Israel's history, and the books of Samuel, the transition to the ruler of the, the, the monarchy of Israel. And tucked in between those epic stories, national stories, is this little tale, this four-chapter tale of a single family, a single widow, and how God transforms her deepest pain into a link in the chain of what is the greatest uh, story in Israel's history and ultimately with the arrival of Jesus in the history of the world. And so as you read through Ruth, keep that in mind, um, that even in the little things, picking up uh, leftover pieces of wheat in a field, looking out for an orphan, a widow, keep in mind that that is what makes somebody great in the eyes of God and that things are happening beyond their wildest dreams uh, in the daily, mundane, everyday acts. So God is not all over the place outwardly in the book of Ruth, but when you dust for his fingerprints, they're everywhere throughout this story. Um, so that's it. We're going to wrap it up. I uh, hope you've enjoyed it. It's uh, been a longer than usual study, but these are weird circumstances. I was gone for a few weeks, and then now we're kind of all on quarantine mode with this corona thing going on. So um, just bear with us. Uh, continue to subscribe to the podcast. In the meantime, before we can put out new episodes, be sure to check out previous episodes and previous studies. If you're just joining us, catch up on the story of Israel that we've been doing. Uh, go all the way back, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, and get a hold of the big picture of what God's doing because that's the goal of this podcast and of this study. So uh, that's it. I hope you've enjoyed, Ruth, this journey through this small but powerful book. I've enjoyed teaching it. Uh, take care, and we'll see you soon.